You're listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Get caught up on this week's top stories from The Hash Crew. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Monday's top story. So because we have lack of clarity as to what the heck is going on in the crypto asset industry, it looks like a very large crypto VC is deciding to open up offices overseas, which is something that we're going to see recurring, I think, for the next, maybe until after election season. A16Z is expanding to the UK. They have approximately $35 billion in assets under management across multiple different funds. And they said that the UK government is willing to create policies that encourage startups to pursue decentralization. The office is going to open up later this year. And it's going to be used to invest in crypto and startup ecosystems in UK and Europe. And I have a feeling we're going to see a lot more companies decide to do this. And the reason why they're said they're not completely closing down U.S. operations yet is there's still a glimmer of hope. I forget what that meme is where, bro, maybe there's a chance, maybe there's a chance. Um, but these companies are starting to hedge and um, look at options overseas, um, places where they're actually welcome so that they can continue to build and make money. And it looks like the United States is going to lose quite a bit of taxpayer revenue. Will, I want to get your take on this. Yeah, this is big news, right? We've been talking about uh, the U.K. for a little bit, and we've been talking about the uh, how they've been more friendly to crypto, especially with their new prime minister coming in uh, late last year. And he said he was like pro Bitcoin, pro crypto, pro Web3. And a lot of politicians give lip service to emerging markets, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But quickly, it seems that that is being taken up by firms. And A16Z decided to open up its second office ever uh, is a big indicator of that. One thing that was in the article, you can read on coindesk.com talking about this was the fact that there's been more unicorns out of the UK than there has been in a scattering of different European countries they're talking about, including something like Germany, which is a pretty big place for actually Ethereum development. A lot of the early Ethereum devs came out of Germany. So the fact that they're moving into this jurisdiction is an indicator of the growth in the past and also like the future of where this market is going to go. It, one note on this is we've been talking about the Mika regulations that are just coming out right now. Uh, markets and crypto assets, which the EU has just passed. It took a very long time to create. A lot of people looked at that and they were like, hey, this is great for Europe. This is great for crypto developers to move here to start setting up. We have regulatory clarity as opposed to the United States. But with Brexit or a few years ago now, we know that those two jurisdictions are operating under different laws. The UK and the EU do not have the same crypto laws. And to see this happen to Mika and then the UK right after makes me wonder how actual developers and founders are thinking of the Mika rules. Why not just go to the UK if it's even more friendly uh, over the US or EU? Zach, I'll throw it up to you. Yeah, this is super interesting. And it puts a lot of weight behind some of these comments that we've seen from you know Coinbase and Brian Armstrong and others in the space saying, hey, US, if you're going to be inhospitable, we're going to take our ball and go elsewhere. And so you see A16Z, which is obviously probably like, I don't know, has the biggest uh, amount of skin in the game as it relates to making Web3 a real thing saying, hey, we're going to set up a major presence in the UK. And by the way, we're going to make a major investment in the UK crypto startup. So I think this actually lends weight and credence to the argument that I think a lot of people in, in the US are seeking. They want some leverage. They want to be able to say, hey, like we're going to go elsewhere and do this, and the US might get left behind. You know, In the post itself, they say, hey, we're committed to working with US policymakers. This is by no means you know, a full departure from the US. But it certainly, again, lends weight and leverage to these claims of being like, well, if it's going to continue to be inhospitable, and if we you know, can see the writing on the wall, 
we're going to go choose some different places elsewhere, whether that's the UK, whether that's France, whether that's the Middle East, whether that's Asia. There's all these countries that are emerging as um, you know, more regulatory friendly, more common sense regulation of this industry and these assets. So I think it does just, again, from a messaging and sort of narrative perspective, and like lend a lot of weight to this idea that US, the US crypto industry could just go elsewhere very easily and bring with it jobs, money, investment, and all the things that politicians really tend to care about. So that to me is sort of the big picture, but fascinating to see this. Also kind of interesting that it dropped uh, overnight UK time, you know, sort of the Sunday evening to get the sort of chattering classes going in the US, but in the middle of night in UK, which that was interesting. And we've already seen a little bit of blowback from some uh, prominent people in the UK who are not super duper happy with this. But Jen, I'll toss it to you for your thoughts. Yeah, it was interesting to read this because the UK hasn't always been super friendly towards crypto, right? I think recently we spoke about how some lawmakers in the UK were said that they were thinking about regulating crypto the same way that they were regulating gambling. And to see this really quick change and to see this group of lawmakers now say, we're looking at regulating crypto as a financial service, financial services. I think there was like more than 50 recommendations in these like new, um, in this new paper, I think is really interesting. And it shows that they see the value that Mika is bringing to Europe and they want to follow suit. I know, I think at the beginning of May, some numbers came out that showed the share of VC investments into European crypto projects. And it's up almost like 10 times in one year. So uh, in Q1 of 2022, the share was 5.9%. And that's up to 47.6% in Q2 of 2023. And so the tr truth is in the numbers, right? We're seeing the money go to Europe. We're seeing you know more, more jobs being created in Europe as more startups are launched there and more people move off there. And so I think the proof is in the pudding and it will be, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in the U.S. I, I, it will be interesting to watch. The next two years are probably until we probably will not get clarity until after election season, in my opinion. So like two more years of this ridiculousness. And I probably should pull up a chart and look and compare what, what happened last happening to see what we could expect, because maybe this was not the bottom. There's still time, Wendy. Bring your charts. Tell us. That's a lot of work right now. It's Monday <laughs> Not morning. Not now. Later. <laughs> Tuesday's top story. It's the hot topic these past couple weeks, and we got a fresh development that dropped today. Hotly anticipated it was the Hinman emails, a former director of the SEC way back when, who made the proclamation that Ether didn't appear to be a security back in 2018. Those emails and documents related to that speech had been sealed for a number of years. And today, as part of a lawsuit with Ripple Labs, those emails have been released, shedding light on how the SEC discussed this internally at the time in what is a really timely drop of some public documents as the debate around crypto asset securities rages ever more intensely. So this was a big story, hotly anticipated again, and we're going to talk about it. I'm going to throw it straight to Wendy. Did anything from these emails stand out to you? And does it change your opinion of the SEC and how it's dealing with this asset class? Don't ever ask me in my opinion of the SEC live on air, please. Because <laughs> we ask you every day, Wendy. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I was live streaming yesterday on my channel and I got this news. My daughter was like, Mom, she had came in and she wanted candy. And I gave her candy to celebrate because Gary Gensler, 
you're getting fired, man. All right, that's something else. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually very excited that this is finally released. I was able, I was given the chance to go through these a little bit earlier this morning. I'm going to be dropping a video with my thoughts on it. But basically, I think that this is good for the industry. It just kind of shows, like, I'm not a legal person, so I'll pass this over to Jen in a second. But I just think that this is good to show that the SEC has no idea what they're talking about. The people that we are paying, we're funding their public salary to essentially protect poor people, unaccredited investors from all the dangerous things in crypto, they have no idea on how to actually classify the stuff. So they went ahead and it sounded like they reached out to Vitalik um, to kind of understand what the stuff is, which to me is problematic because again, he's the creator of Ethereum. He's got a lot of money invested in it. And I just think that a lot of the back and forth that we've seen over the, since like 2018, 2019, even 2017 has been absolutely ridiculous. And I think a lot of this could have all been avoided if we introduced Hester Purse's Safety Harbor Act to help these, these digital assets become non-securities via decentralization. So I feel like that's going to be a big argument that we're going to see in the future. I know Library is tweeting out a lot about what's going on and what's happening. We have all the crypto Twitter citizen journalists that are going through these documents and just having a field day with it. So hopefully this is good for the future of the industry. Um, but again, I'm not a legal person. So Jen, would you like to comment? I'm also not a legal person. I have to say I'm the hashes legal person, which doesn't hold much weight. And Zach, I must say that the studio energy is just great. You should be in the studio all the time. It just brings that extra zhuzh to the show. Uh, so the documents, we were all expecting these documents to drop. And I think that uh, a lot of people like, could kind of expect what was going to come out in the documents. XRP isn't directly mentioned in them. It will be interesting. Like I'm interested to see just how the discussion plays out in court. Of course, the judge is expected to make a ruling in the case by the end of September. And so I'm just curious about how this progressive decentralization discourse is going to take place. I'm curious about how the SEC is going to respond because they really tried to not release these documents. And so I'm just curious to watch and see how this plays out and how the results of these documents being released in this case might inform the Coinbase case. And so I think that this is going to not only have an effect on the SEC versus Ripple, but also the SEC versus Coinbase, maybe Binance, even though that that is that is totally different. There are totally different allegations being made there. So I think that this is just going to be good for pushing the regulatory conversation forward, which is what people thought was going to happen anyways. Will, what do you think? Yeah, there's two thoughts on this. One, do these emails help out the entire ecosystem? And two, does this help out the Ripple Labs case? To the first point, I think it does help out the entire ecosystem because they see that this is more of a partisan issue or bipartisan issue here where we have like an old administration, old SEC under Donald Trump having one purview on this entire topic. And then we have a different administration come in and they change the tune. And in the meantime, there's all these founders and developers building all these projects and they, they were acting on this old information. All of a sudden, the administration changes and you also have to change your entire business model. And I think that kind of points to like the Binance US case and also the Coinbase case right now, where they were acting under the information that they were given. They're building under the information for years. They thought these things were okay to build on top of or to use or to solicit and sell. And then new administration comes in and all of a sudden the rules of the road change. Imagine driving down the highway and then all of a sudden they just flip it on you and say, you need to go the other way right now. And if you don't, you're going to cause a huge pileup and there's going to be a lot of problems. Well, it's kind of what the SEC did to a lot of cases. Now to the, the Ripple part of this, I'm not sure it helps out Ripple Labs as much as they might think. Why? Well, because the XRP token itself doesn't really seem to be showing this gradual move towards decentralization. They might claim that, but there isn't like a lot of documentation showing that. 
Ethereum, on the other case, does, right? So they did do initial coin offering back in 2015 and 2016. And over time, there's been a huge dilution of ETH. There's been a lot of applications built on top of Ethereum that do use ETH as gas, as a commodity. XRP, we haven't quite seen that, mostly because we haven't seen a lot of adoption besides bag holding and buying of it. There's also this huge question of Ripple Labs holding a bunch of XRP. They still do this escrow schedule where every few months they release a bunch of XRP into the wild. This XRP was first set aside for Ripple Labs when Ripple started up. So you might say there's some similarities between the Ethereum Foundation and, and the Ripple Labs getting their token allocations. But I think over time, you can see like it's a little bit different. So I'm unsure how this helps out Ripple Labs and the XRP army. Zach? Yeah, as you saw, XRP pumped on the news and then sold off rather sharply as crypto tokens do. Interesting to see. To me, quickly, the thing that stands out is that this wasn't a fringe opinion of the agency at the time, right? This was discussed among various higher ups at the SEC before Hinman made these public remarks. I think the SEC more recently has tried to distance itself from some of those remarks and cast it as though it was sort of one man's opinion. But clearly, I think the documents that are released today show that this was discussed among various people at the agency itself who gave sort of tacit sign off to what Hinman ultimately said. So I think from a narrative perspective, that is worth noting because uh, previously it had been sort of shunted aside as though Hinman was speaking sort of out of turn. So to see these back and forth and to see the edits and conversations in the email record is really fascinating to watch. And this whole Ripple case has just aged fantastically into this whole uh, conversation around more than just XRP and around a whole bevy of assets. So it is fascinating to watch this drop here and now. Wednesday's top story. Let's talk about the U.S. Treasury. Thinking about how to keep the U.S. CBDC, should there ever be one, private, right? There's different privacy norms in the U.S. as opposed to, say, China, where CBDC development has gone full steam ahead. Treasury is taking a cautious approach, trying to make sure that they can balance the benefits of putting this stuff on a digital ledger with the rightful concerns around people having privacy, right? And people having their transactions not monitored by the government that is issuing this CBDC. So the digital dollar conversation still very much in play. Unclear if it's going to come to pass in the US, but the Treasury is doing its due diligence or so it seems. I'll toss this straight to Jen for her initial thoughts. What's your take on this uh, Treasury headline? I have so many takes on this, right? And I think that you can only really know how people are going to receive things and how they're going to work if you have an MVP and you do a pilot like so many countries are doing, right? Brazil is doing a pilot, Australia is doing a pilot, and they're testing out some of these wholesale and retail use cases. I think that that kind of information would benefit this discussion. Maybe the US is going to look to pilots overseas and compile information from those projects and then put it to work here in the US. One of the interesting tidbits in the reporting about the CBDCs that I picked up on this morning when I was reading these stories is that there is a concern that CBDCs are going to be so fast and so effective that it could encourage bank runs or not encourage, but there's no process in place to prevent bank runs. People are going to be able to get their money so quickly that, you know, there's not going to be any kind of infrastructure to, to stop that. I think the conversations around that are going to be really interesting because if they want to prevent something that the current financial system prevents, it's going to take like a whole infrastructure change. It's going to take a whole rethinking of how these financial systems work. I don't know. You know how I feel about CBDCs. So that's like my take on everything outside of, of the privacy stuff. But I'll pass it off to Will and maybe we'll come back to the privacy. 
Yeah, I mean, this headline straight out three years ago, so not, nothing too <laughs> new here. But we can go through the last three years and talk about what CBDCs have meant for the U.S., how political parties are thinking about them, and how individuals are thinking about them. I think at this point, most people think that some sort of CBDC-like structure will emerge. Whether it has a token or not doesn't really matter. Basically, the idea is just instant payments and that the Fed or the Treasury will have more uh, granular data on American spending habits than they do right now. And so it might be a CBDC, it might be something else, but probably will have those two components in and of itself. We're seeing so far that there's going to be a very bipartisan issue around CBDCs. That'd be like states, especially Republican-leaning states, are going to lean against CBDCs. Texas and Florida have already sort of moved against this. But Florida already implemented some sort of quote-unquote ban on any federal CBDC that won't really hold up in court ever because Florida is a part of the union. So it's not like they're able to not use federal money. But it was a nice political stunt. And I think as we go into the next election and maybe 2028 election, when something could actually happen, this would be like a very big subject. So that's one thing to watch out of this. The second is if other countries do adopt this and the US wants to preserve its regime as like the head of the global currency with the dollar, they might get more serious about this. But I think for right now, this is sort of a mute discussion because the Fed has Fed down. It's rolling out in July. It has SWIFT. It's able to offboard anybody they want. They can onboard whoever they want. And that's not going to change necessarily just with a different token solution or a different tech solution. They already have the moat because they have the network effect of the dollar and its warships. Zach, I'll throw it over to you. You have Yellen a few days ago saying how important it is for the dollar to be you know, that that critical global currency. So that is very much in play. I think you're right to bring up sort of the political context because the CBDC has emerged as sort of a political lightning rod in recent months, despite no seeming forward progress on this actually happening. So a lot of the rhetoric around the CBDCs, you know, here's big bad government prying into your wallet. It kind of makes sense that Steele here, who's making this speech, will go out and say, hey, we're really working on this privacy stuff, guys. Like the big bad government boogeyman may not be baked into this equation should we ever get there. So I think that political context is important um, because it is a little bit of cover from what has been increasingly like hot rhetoric being sort of rained down on the Biden administration in this instance. Um, so the fact that this official will come out and say, hey, like we're looking into privacy enhancing technology, should we do this? Certainly fits interestingly into the political conversation around it. Because I think you're right, Will, like this is not, you know, especially new, this, this, some of the stuff that we're seeing, but all of a sudden the rhetoric around it is quite new. Uh, so the fact that they're ramping up calls for really looking into these privacy-enhancing technologies, you know, should they ever do this thing, I think is interesting in the political context, at least. Uh, Will, I saw your hand tossing it to you. Can we go back to that Janet Yellen photo? I absolutely love it. And I want to look at it for one more second because it's, it's so good. Oh, no, we just scrolled past it. Maybe we'll come back in a second. It's a great photo. She looks like a little... I don't know why they picked that photo. It's like... Uh, or took it. Obviously, Coindesk didn't take it. But whoever did take that photo was kind of conniving right there, right? Like, she looks like she's up to no good. They're playing against a CBDC bias here. Zach, going back to the, the privacy concerns here, I do feel like this is just giving lip service to some people who are afraid of a CBDC rolling out because I think when it does happen, the US government, that's not, they're not going to care about that, right? The IRS already has most of your information about your spending habits. So why would they? you know, take a step forward and try to issue some sort of privacy around this. They have an interest in knowing about your spending habits. It just comes down to like the economics of the situation, right? They want to know where capital is flowing and they have granular data that only betters their models, only betters what they're trying to do. 
obviously us on the hash and i think people in crypto in general would not want that but i think when this does come out they're not really going to do much with that jen over to you yeah, I mean, we say this all the time, but I think there's so much education needed. I think this has become a political talking point. People in the industry talk about it a lot. But I think when we brought in out the pool, you know, the everyday man on the street maybe doesn't really understand the intricacies of a CBDC. Maybe they think it's just a digital dollar. There's some data that's pointed to in that research where Americans were sur surveyed. I'm not sure the size of the sample pool. And they said 49% said that they just didn't know. And so I think maybe the elections are doing some of the job at, at kind of educating people, but there's like a larger gap here for Americans to really understand what a CBDC, I think, would mean. But Zach, I'll give it to you for last words. All right, re really quickly, some additional polling sample size three. Quickly, do you think that a U.S. digital dollar is going to be deployed? It's still very much in question as to whether or not it will happen, according to these remarks. Will, yes or no? In a CBDC format, I think in the next five years, yes. Jen, you? I think yes. I think no. I'm holding out. I think no. <laughs> Do you really think no, or are you just going against us? Even I a mean, pilot a little, program, little, though. A little like, bit of both. It doesn't mean no, I really think no. I really think no. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. Well, we'll have to wait and see. The biggest CBD shill on the show doesn't think it's going to happen. <laughs> Bullish. Bullish. Wild. It's always keeping us on our toes. What is Zach? Zach. Great Zach this morning, Zach. Hey, good job. <laughs> a head fake every now and then. Thursday's top story. First up, the world's biggest asset manager, that would be BlackRock, is gearing up for their own Bitcoin ETF, reportedly using Coinbase for custody and pricing, according to a person familiar with the matter. It's honestly a really interesting time to make the move and raises a couple of questions, not least of which is, if this is a futures-based vehicle, the only kind that's been approved in the U.S. to date, why would Coinbase custody be involved? And on the other hand, if Coinbase custody is involved, what does BlackRock know that would push them towards an approach that's been uniformly and repeatedly rejected by the regulator to date? Jen, what do you think? You know, I had the same questions as I was reading the story, and it feels like another road to boring story, right? Despite all of the regulatory action that's happening, despite what we see going on in the markets and tokens reacting, we still have the largest asset manager in the world filing for an ETF. Granted, we don't know if it is a spot or futures ETF. I guess my question uh, to you, Adam, is what is the likelihood that this could be a spot ETF? And like, what do you what do you think about the timing? It feels it feels like odd timing, I must say. Yeah, I mean, we're in depth, definitely the depths of a bear market right now. And ETF vehicles, especially on the future side of the table, really haven't performed very well. One of the downsides about future contracts is that Effectively, when markets are going are going down, uh, then you have kind of the, the losses get amplified, right? When they're going up, it's kind of the other way. And one of the things about it also is that it doesn't affect the, the kind of price of the underlying asset because none of the actual, effectively what you're doing with that type of ETF is you're buying futures contracts to bet on the price appreciation of Bitcoin or not, depending on the type of vehicle. So that means that if you have a billion dollars worth of you know, ETF demand that goes into an ETF, it doesn't actually change the supply uh, demand dynamics of the underlying asset at all. And that's one of the reasons why kind of uh, the futures approach has been interesting is because the reason why the SEC has said that they prefer futures is that they're concerned that the underlying assets uh, and the exchanges are could, potentially could be manipulated. Um, that's a funny argument because if you have futures on something, you're betting on the price of something. And that would mean that futures would definitely be kind of subject to any distortions that were there in the underlying asset.
But but I think it does come back to that other question. Now, it's it's inevitable that this is going to happen. This has always been a stalling action from the SEC. And I think that's the interesting question is, does BlackRock know something that we don't that would push them towards making this push now when the market really doesn't seem to support it? And yet here we are. Zach? I'd say it might be a bit, you know, they might have a bit of foresight here, right? They're going to say, hey, Bitcoin's going to come back. We want to be first in the market with something that could be of use to our clients. They're a longtime partner with Coinbase. So I think if this reported um, connection is true, that would make sense, right? They announced a partnership with Coinbase, I think, I guess, back in the summer of 2022. Um, so the fact that they would work through Coinbase here, maybe it's just as a continuation of what they had set in motion a while back, right? It may not be something especially new, but it may be a way that gets product into the hands of BlackRock customers in a way that's more comfortable to them. Uh, the spot Bitcoin ETF was this long sort of holy grail of the industry and is still very much in question as whether or not that will ever see the light of day. Um, so one would think that maybe this would be the, the futures approach since it has worked, but who knows? Again, this is according to a source. This is a scoop. Uh, this has not yet been announced by either of these teams. So this is all reportedly at present and things are often subject to change. It is fascinating, I think, to see movement on the Bitcoin ETF side uh, in the wake of what we saw with GPTC, uh, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust disclosure, Grayscale is a sister company of Coindesk, all that good stuff. But that the GBTC trade really wrecked a lot of people in the last cycle. And I think um, having a Bitcoin ETF in the market might be a more safe path going forward for a lot of these more traditional financial firms who want access to Bitcoin um, without necessarily going whole hog into the asset itself. So the fact that BlackRock is behind this is potentially really large and potentially suggests that, again, TradFi players, big ones, are still interested in Bitcoin as an asset uh, and getting the products onto the market that they think will be useful to them. Uh, Come next interest cycle. Come next bull cycle. So it's going to be interesting to see if the hit, this hits the market before then. Uh, Adam, I think I saw your hand. I'll toss it back to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, again, you can look at what kind of is going on with the U.S. Central Bank, where yesterday we had kind of the first pause after a really record run you know, of rate increases up 2,000% in just over a year uh, in terms of the core rate from uh, 0.25 up to 5.25 is kind of the upper bound of that range. So, I mean, like you've got weird dynamics in markets right now. And those weird dynamics and markets are pushing people into areas that are typically not in their kind of comfort zone. Because again, one of the things about monetary policy in this fashion is there's no place to hide. It's not like there are safe assets. It's not like you can look to another currency, you know, and it's not like you can even look to something like Bitcoin. And, and again, like the, the, the difference between the spot ETF and the futures ETF is I think really interesting in that spot ETFs are better vehicles in many ways. Other countries have approved them and they haven't seemed to have had a problem with them. And the U.S. has been a notable outlier in that kind of forcing people down the futures paths, even as it has delivered worse results for investors. So, I, you know, I mean, that's really where I come down to is is just like it's it's an odd move from the regulator. It feels like it's more of a stall tactic than it is really anything else. And if that's true, again, and if some of my cynicism about the regulators and the revolving door that operates between them, then, you know, this seems like kind of prime ground for, hey, if we're going to improve one from a trusted source that just happens to be the largest asset manager in the world who we have very close proximity to from a power perspective. So that's the cynic in me. But uh, what do you think, Zach? I mean, I will leave your cynical take with you and I will move on. But that's some good stuff. A lot of good, interesting things here. TradFi still interested in the crypto world. Pretty crazy. You've been listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.